Well, good evening, men. How are we doing? All right. Well, welcome here to Men's Bible Study, Session 3 of 13, so we're glad to have you. By way of quick reminder to all you guys who have girlfriends and wives, you guys are getting a quick reminder that next Monday is Valentine's Day. We will not be meeting here. So if you haven't yet, <laughs> if you haven't yet bought your gift uh, for your wife, your loved one, go ahead and uh, take care of that this week, won't you? All right, we are in, uh, we are in 1 Thessalonians, continuing our uh, chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians. We are in chapter 2 tonight. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. We don't have enough time to get through the entire chapter, so we'll leave that, we'll leave that for next time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to bless our Bible study. Heavenly Father, Lord God, you're so gracious. You are so magnificent. Your, uh, your grace, your mercies, they're new each and every single day. There isn't a man in this fellowship right here, right now, myself included, Lord, who is not the recipient of your grace, of your marvelous grace and your mercy. We need it each and every single day. And so often throughout the day, Lord, we magnify you, we praise you. Lord, we want to lift up this Bible study to you, that you would bless it to each man here, myself included. Lord, help me to get out of the way. Help those things that are of you to stick. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, let's get started here. Chapter 2, verse 1. In Paul's writing, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain was not in vain. Now look at this word, know. He says, you yourselves know. That word is ado, ado. And it is identical to chapter 1, verse 4. Do you remember that from last time? What did Paul say? Chapter 1, verse 4. He said, for we know, we ado, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. In this sense, he says, you yourselves know something. What is it? that our coming to you was not in vain. This word ado, obviously it's rendered to know, to know. And it does mean no, but what kind of no is this? You guys are familiar with the Greek gnosko. And that means textbook knowledge. It means to learn about something. It is progressive. All right? It's not necessary, necessarily familiar to you in a personal way. That would be gnosko. But this word... Chapter 1, verse 4, and here, chapter 2, verse 1, is Edo, Edo. This word for knowledge, it speaks of a full knowledge. It is a settled knowledge. And beyond that, it's also personal, personal. Now, if that's just a little bit confusing, why don't we, have, uh, why don't we look at an example? John, chapter 8, verse 55. Don't turn, just listen. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and false teachers. There he says, Jesus is speaking to them, and he says, but you have not known, Gnosko, if you're taking note, he says, you have not known or come to know him, that is the Father. I know him, I ado him, the Father. I have a personal connection with him. I have full, uninterrupted knowledge of the Father. Watch now. If I were to say, Jesus says, if I were to say that I do not Edo him. I don't have a full, personal, completed knowledge of him. I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, Edo. I do know him. And I keep his word. Did you guys see that? Gnosko is a coming to know. 
It's learning about. It's coming or going to school. It's academic. It's not necessarily uh, personal. It can be secondhand. It can be thirdhand. That's gnosko, coming to know about something. Edo is a settled knowledge. It is a personal knowledge, and it repeats from chapter 1, verse 4. And this chapter really is fascinating. I've thought of a hundred different ways to share this chapter with each and every one of you. So you pardon me if I stumble a little bit because there's a fascinating thing that's happening here in chapter 2. It is nearly identical to chapter 1. Nearly. Almost. There are fascinating parallels to chapter 1. Just to revisit chapter 1 for a moment. As I said, verse 4, Paul and Silas, they know. They ado. They know something. What do they know? They know that they are beloved by God. They're brothers. And what else? That they're chosen by God. We know this. We know it. But here in chapter 2, it's the Thessalonians. He says, you yourselves know, Edo, know what? That our having coming to you, our missionary trip, was not in vain. Now watch this. In chapter 1, that was verse 4, and then verses 5 through 10 are proof texts. You guys familiar with that? Proof texts. And these are texts that are used to prove a conclusion that's already been stipulated or stated. And that, again, was chapter 1, verse 4. We know. We know this to be true. It's settled. And then he puts forth all of these verses, as I said, verses 5 through 10 in chapter 1. It was amazing. Here in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you yourselves know that our having come to you was not in vain. And then he gives us proof texts, just like he did in chapter 1. In this case, it's verses 2, and we're only going to look through uh, verses 16. Those are the proof texts, so let's look at it. Verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, he mentions this only briefly, They suffered and they had been shamefully treated. And we're expecting him to go on these details about what happened there. He doesn't do that. He's only mentioning it briefly, and 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 I'll tell you why here in just a moment. But to know what he's talking about on your own homework, go back to Acts chapter 17 and 16, and you guys can read that for homework. Marvelous. So why does he bring it up? Why even mention the suffering? He says, you guys know that we we suffered. We We had terrible treatment there in Philippi. Why does he bring it up? Is he trying to malign the magistrates that arrested them in the first place? No. Is he casting rebuke or judgment on the Jews that had whipped up the frenzy and the riot in the first place in Philippi? No. Is he trying to develop a pity party and woe is me, me and Silas? No. Simply to demonstrate that their boldness was in God. They hadn't wavered. They hadn't faltered. And that's why, just in memory, now you can glance at it with your Bibles open, chapter 1, verse 5, what does he say? Our our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full confidence. Full confidence. So there's boldness in God. Not his own ability. His boldness is in God, who's put them on this trip from Philippi down to Thessalonica. Okay, so, okay, but still, why mention the suffering? Why? Because he's contrasting the boldness. It's boldness. Boldness. It's not boldness apart from suffering. What is boldness? Boldness. This is my definition. Boldness is disregarding risk, the risk of harm, the risk of loss, to pursue a goal or agenda. You say, man, that's bold. Why is it so bold? You see what he did? He jumped into the river knowing that there were piranhas. He knew it. And yet he still 
still did it. The boldness. I can't believe what he just did. That's my example. The boldness. Here he says, we have boldness in God. How bold are you? So bold in light of the fact that we had suffered and been ill-treated over in Philippi. It's not ignorance. Ignorance is doing something and having no perception whatsoever. It's jumping in that river again, having no understanding, no perception whatsoever that there are piranhas. That's not boldness. That's lunacy. It's ridiculous. It's ignorance. This, on the other hand, is not ignorance. It's boldness. As I said, they were arrested. They were beaten, stripped, naked, near. Terrible suffering. Now, let's see what else it says here. He says, we had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So the boldness was in God to deliver the gospel, despite their circumstances. And look at it. It says, to declare to you the gospel in, of God in the midst of much conflict. Conflict, agon, you get agony. That's the Greek, agon. We get agony from that. Terrible opposition, terrible conflict, terrible contention. And it came from all sides. Look at this. It says much conflict, polis or polis, many or much. There was a tremendous amount of persecution and suffering, not just at Philippi, but it was also there in Thessalonica. It's coming in all sides. We declared to you the gospel of God in what? In the midst of much conflict, terrible conflict. So they had boldness. They didn't retreat. They didn't quit. They didn't rest. These guys, among all people, could have just buried their heads and said, look guys, I, need, I just need a rest. Let someone else do the work of the ministry. But they didn't. Alright, so as I said, proofs, proofs of why the Thessalonians know. Edo, they know. It's settled confidence. It's personal. And so we want to look here at verses 3 through 12. And in order to do that, it divides into two subdivisions. Verses 3 through 12, we divide into two subsessions. On one side, it's attributes that are negative, negative attributes. And on the other side, it's positive attributes. So we'll see that. Let's start first with the negative attributes. And these are attributes that specify what Paul and Silas did not do versus the attributes of their character that they did do, which we'll get to. So let's start up here in verse 3. Let's look at it. He says, Our appeal, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. It does not spring forth. It does not generate or originate. It does not have its root in these three elements, error, impurity, and any attempt to deceive. We know what they mean, but can we look at it just a little closer? Sure. Error, error. This type of error here in the Greek, it speaks of being factually wrong. Listen now, it's factually wrong, but you believe it. It's not that it's a fact, you know, uh, it's not that it's factually wrong, you know it's factually wrong, and you're just spitting the lies anyway. No, no, you actually believe it. Elvis, he's alive, he's with Tupac, and they're making music right now. No, I really believe that. Okay, I get that you believe it, but you are factually wrong, my friend. Okay, Elvis and Tupac are not making music together, okay? So error, it does not spring from error. What we bring to you does not come from error. It's not wrong, it's not factually incorrect. He mentions impurity. We won't spend a whole lot of time. We know what that is. It's always connected to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Sexual impurity. You look at a false teacher long enough, and what would you find in them? And in the people that are around them? You will find sexual immorality of all color and character. It's awful. 
He says, we did not come to you in error. It was not factually incorrect. We're not coming to prey upon you to gratify our own sexual desires, sexual impurity, uncleanness. And what was the other thing? It says, any attempt to deceive. Aha. Now, this is a little different from error. Here, you know it's factually incorrect, and yet you're still acting craftily, okay, subtly. You're beguiling, okay? You are bewitching. You guys remember that from our study in Galatians. And you're drawing men away from the true gospel of Christ into a damning doctrine. So their motivation, their motivation was not rooted in error. It was not rooted in impurity or deceit. Quite the opposite. Look at verse 4. It says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men or man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He says, we've been approved. Verse 4, approved, dokimadzo. What does that mean? I approve it. No, no, no. It's so much more than that, guys. Tested, proven, examined very closely. This is not a casual glance. It's not a, a brief summary. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. This same word speaks of careful, methodical examination, like a scientist peering down and looking at every single detail. It's used throughout the New Testament. I'll just bring a few examples. 1 Corinthians 3.13, Paul says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day, the day, will disclose it. Why? Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Examine. This is not a cursory glance. Examine. Carefully look. And then, look at this, 1 Timothy 3.10. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove, prove themselves blameless. Let them be tested until they prove themselves. Do you guys get that? So they were approved. They were examined by God himself. And trusted, it says, with the sacred gospel. You cannot take that lightly. They've been entrusted with the gospel, not a gospel. It's not one of many gospels. It is the gospel. The gospel is a two-edged sword, isn't it? Sure it is. In the hearing of it, men are either judged or they are justified. Men are either judged or justified in the hearing of the gospel. That's how critical it is. Men's eternal destinies weigh in the balance with this gospel. It's sacred. It cannot just be entrusted to just anybody. You can't just willy-nilly get out there and do it. Oh, people do, and they're harshly judged. L listen to this. Teachers, beware. What did James say? James 3.1, just listen. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, harshly judged for proclaiming to speak the word on God's behalf. You will be judged harshly. He says, not many of you ought to be teachers. You will be judged strictly. And so they were examined, they were approved, and they were entrusted. They were entrusted. And having been entrusted, what did they do? Well, Matt, they spoke. They preached. That's what they did. He says, look now, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. I'm in verse 4 now. So we speak. And look, not to please man. We don't speak to please man, but to please God. Who tests our hearts? What is he saying? They spoke to please God, which is eerily similar. You guys remember from our introduction, chapter 4, verse 1, walk to please God. Walk to please God, if you guys were here with us. Here he says, speak 
to please God. So in the general sense, you walk to please God, and we'll get there when we get to chapter 4. In a general sense, for the scope of our lives and your life and my life, we are to walk to please God in everything we say, do, and think. Amen? But here in 2.4, it's of a specific sense, speaking of speaking. All right? So let's consider that for a moment. In proclaiming the gospel, in speaking the gospel, what's happening? Well, you're speaking, obviously, and we went over that last session as well. It is the prescribed mode of delivering the gospel. Oh, I'm going to do a play, I'm going to do a drawing, I'm going to do a movie, I'm going to do a song, a praise and worship. That's all well and good, but the preaching of the gospel, that's where it's at. That's what the Lord himself has designed it to be. All right, so nothing wrong with psalms, nothing wrong with hymns, nothing wrong with any other uh, mode of preaching and trying to spread the gospel, not minimizing it, but the mode, the prescribed mode is through the preaching of the word, and you have to speak. And so he speaks in the specific sense of speaking. Now, what else happens when you're speaking? Your voice, specifically your speaking, your speech, the words that are coming out, they will rat you out. It's a tattletale. Sure it is. How you speak, listen, how you speak, have you ever done that? You go to work, you're in the grocery store, you're with whoever you're with, and you listen to how they speak. Does it not tattletale on them? Does it not rat them out on the type of person that they are? Despite what they say, when you hear those dirty jokes, when they say unkind things, smart aleck comments, whatever, what does it do? It reveals their character, the character of their lives, their integrity, doesn't it? What they love, what their affections are, what they dislike, Oh, I can't stand porn. Oh, really? And then all they do is talk about jokes. Well, I'm just saying. What did James say regarding this speaking? He says, know this, my beloved brothers. Know what? Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Why? James 3, 5. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 3, 6 of James. The tongue is a fire it is a world of unrighteousness, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of life, and set on fire by hell itself. That's the tongue. That's your speech. That's my speech. Such a little member, and it sets everything ablaze. Your speech, how you speak, will rat you out. What does this have to do with Paul and Silas? Well, they spoke and they preached. And look this. They spoke not as to please man, they spoke and preached so as to please the Lord. Who what? Who tests the heart? Who tests their motives? Sure, now go back to 2.5. It says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What's he saying here? God is witness. We've been approved, we've been examined, we have been entrusted with the gospel, and so we speak, not as to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. We came to you not with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, never seeking glory from anybody, not from others, and not from the Thessalonians. Now, I don't want you to miss this. There's a little piece here at the end here. Did you see it? Verse 6, he says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Did you guys see that? It's fascinating. He says we could have made demands. We could have made demands, but we didn't. Like what? Like what? What demands could they have made? Food and lodging. 
1 Thessalonians 2.9, just a few verses down. It says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil and how we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Okay, I got that part, Matt. They're working, they're toiling, but you said food and lodging. And they could have made demands. What are they? More specifically, just listen, second letter, we'll get there later in this semester, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, 8, and 9. He says, we were not idle when we were with you. We weren't idle. We didn't just sit around on the couch eating bonbons. We preached the word, but you just fed ourselves like gluttons. No, he says, we were not idle when we were with you. Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Rather, with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was because of, excuse me, it was not because we do not have that right. You get that? It wasn't because we didn't have a right. We did have a right, but we didn't do it. But rather to give you in ourselves as an example to imitate. Mm. They could have. They were within their biblical right to invoke apostolic rights. They could have done it. And he says, we still didn't do it. Could have. We could have, and it would not have been sin, and yet we still didn't do it. Fascinating. All right, so this is the end of the first division. I told you there's three. There's a negative aspect of the character of this proof text, and then there's the positive. Let's look at the positive. These are positive attributes of their character. We're in verse 7. What does he say here? He says, but we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We were gentle. How gentle? We were, we were as gentle as a nursing mother. That word gentle, you know what it means? It means child. Huh? But we were a child among you. What? No, we were childlike in our gentleness. A child. I don't mean like a, a raucous middle schooler, okay, with their elbows out just like a bull in a china shop. No, I'm talking a small, wee child. I'm talking about the innocence of a four-year-old. Now, some of your four-year-olds may be like mine, and they just kind of get a little aroused, uh, you know, and they can get a little violent and aggressive. But in the simplest sense, nipios means child or babe. And in this sense, he's talking about how we were among you. He says, childlike gentleness. And then he says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Let's keep reading, because mentioning a nursing mother, watch now, is tied and linked into verse 8. So verse 7, he says, we were gentle. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And a lot of people just stop right there. You know, you got to keep reading. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were what? Ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Affection begets sacrifice. Yeah, sure it does. We were like a nursing mother and we were affectionate desirous of you. So much so that they gave their own selves. Isn't that what a mother does, a nursing mother? A nursing mother dotes on her little infant child, and she loves that infant child, doesn't she? And what does she do? She forsakes all discomfort in meeting the child's needs, right? And she's nursing that little child, isn't she? Out of what? Out of great love, an affectionate desire for and of her children. He says, we did the same thing. Similarly, Paul and Silas, what did they do? They forsook any discomfort, any affliction, any persecution whatsoever, any minor, mild annoyance. Why? So we could share the gospel. That's what he says. Uh-oh, wait, there's more. And to share their very lives. We didn't just come preaching, to the gospel, preaching the gospel to you, right? Eating all your food, taking advantage of you, preaching error, 
impurity, sexual immorality. Okay, we didn't come there to deceive you and carry you away. We were like a mother, a nursing mother, being very affectionate, desirous of you. Marvelous. Now look at nine. Mothers are not a burden to their children. We're just going to keep going with this. Look at this, this metaphor. For you remember, verse 9, brothers, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. All right, so we just kind of talked about that. Nursing mother, being very affectionately desirous of her children. That was Paul and Silas. We came to you. We loved you. And we weren't a burden to you. Now look at 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. This right here, this verse right here, mark this one down. 2.10 is nearly or basically identical or summing up verse 5 of chapter 1. Do you remember it? Go just glance over to chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And we only touched on it ever so briefly so we could talk about it in this session, which is, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He says in verse 10 of chapter 2, you are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. It was holy, it was righteous and blameless. What does that mean? We think we know, and in a general sense, we know what those terms mean. Holy, heavenly, sent from heaven, set apart. That was our conduct. How about righteous? That doesn't mean perfect, but it means that there's no impurity. There's nothing dirty about their life. There's nothing dirty about their talk, right? There's nothing dirty about the way they behave amongst us and, and, and themselves and others outside of this congregation. And then he says, blameless. Did you see that? Righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. It's blameless. What does that mean? It means there's nothing to accuse, right? You look on at their lives and say, oh, man, you see what they did? And you start gossiping about what they did. I can't believe it. This is Paul and Silas, you know? Paul's going to later write this book. Did you see his behavior? It was, it was it's ridiculous. There's nothing to blame. You can't accuse. You can't bring an accusation, a credible, real accusation about the conduct among them. And he says, for your sake. Marvelous. This is the character. So we're breaking down the character referenced in chapter 1, verse 5. Marvelous. It was holy. It was righteous. It was blameless. That was our conduct among you. And for your sake, for your sake, it was for you. Now, we keep going here in verse 11 and 12. He says, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, a moment ago, he was a nursing mother. He was gentle, he was a childlike demeanor, right, very sensitive, and he he forsook any pain or discomfort for their sake. And now he says, and now I'm a father. I'm a father with his children. So how is that? Well, it says right here, exhorted, encouraged, and charged them to what? Walk in a manner worthy of God. Hmm, how are we to read that? How are we to read that? I take you to Ephesians 6.4. Just mark it down, don't go there. Ephesians 6.4 in your minds. There Paul says, fathers, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Do not provoke your children to anger. But what? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up. Now, the nursing mother, what does she do with children? 
she weans her children, doesn't she? Physically, with food, sure. From breast milk to, you know, beets and carrots all mashed up, that's disgusting, right? And then on into more solid food and eventually to steak, right? She's doing it physically. And he talked about being a nursing mother. Now watch this. As a father, what does a father do? Now a father's not going to do that. So what does a father do, if not physically? This is for all of us fathers here in this room. Well, they're going to wean children spiritually. Spiritually. Sure they are. You're a little three and four and five-year-old. They have a, what I would call a familial, familial family, a familial faith, right? They come to church. They sing songs. They love Jesus. They color, and they do all those things, and they listen, and they have their little uh, junior Bibles, and it's marvelous. Uh, it's a marvelous thing. But it's a familial faith until it becomes what? Personal, right? Oh, well, my mom and dad, they were, they're Christians, so I'm a Christian. Mm, no. You know, my dad was a pastor, Okay, and the connection is, well, he's a pastor, so you know I'm in. No, that's not how it works. You have to have a personal faith. We know that. The mother is weaning them physically, and the father is weaning them spiritually. That's what we're to do, and that's what he did with them. He matured them. He grew them up, didn't he? Now, how does the father do this? How does he do it? We, we saw exhortation. We saw encouragement, and we saw charging. Let's look at it, shall we? Exhorted, exhorted, parakaleo. Don't get bogged down in the Greek. Para, para, coming alongside, para. Every time you hear a para something, it's always coming alongside, alongside, right next to, okay? Para, para. Parakaleo, coming alongside and doing what? Calling you, I'm entreating you. It's not in the sense of begging, oh, please, four-year-old, will you come to Jesus? It's not like that. But it's coming alongside them. It's beginning to model. It's beginning to, hey, don't you think you should do that? And as a dad, don't we? We don't just rebuke them harshly. We lovingly come alongside them, and we point the way, and we entreat them as a loving, doting father. Don't we do that? Sure we do. And so that's Pericolette. It's coming alongside your, your kid, your child. And that's what Paul and Silas did. They came alongside the Thessalonians, brand new babes in Christ, and began to wean them, began to grow them by coming alongside them and beseeching them and treating them to come to know the Lord Jesus. Okay, so what's encouraged? Again, para, para, my theomai. What does that mean? Again, we're coming alongside. As a dad, you're still coming alongside. You're still next to them. But maybe not like joined at the hip. Here it speaks of stimulating to discharge of normal duties uh, in English, Matt. Grow in responsibility. Don't we do that as dads? Like, my dad isn't, like, right here on the stage with me, okay? At some point, he just kind of stepped back a little bit. He was right there, right? Remember when you, when you guys uh, were learning to ride a bike? He was right there, okay? Or your grandfather or uncle, whoever it is. They were right there, right next to your side. And that's what's happening here. So a little more responsibility to grow in responsibility. And then that last one, charged. In the Greek, there is no para. The para is missing. Getting a bit more serious now. What does that mean? There's no more, there's no more parables. I mean, he's not right there. There is an expectation of conformity. What does that mean? English again, Matt. Hello, I've taught you. Okay, I've instructed you lovingly as a father. I've begun to wean you from the little things, from the little junior Bible, all the way up into the, pre, the, the hardcore precepts that we know in God's word, okay? More detailed and penetrating into your heart and mind and what that means, okay? Say you're sorry. Well, it's more than that. Don't hold it against him right? If someone apologizes to you, right? You're to forgive. Okay, I forgive. Hugs. Okay, great. And they go on. Now, this is a little more detailed than that. This is, I'm expecting you to conform to the Word of God. I've instructed you. And it's a stepping back 
and you're watching, and I'm, there's an expectation that you are actually going to conform to the precepts that were taught. I hope that makes sense. Hmm. It's obedience to his commands. So what about the Thessalonians? I was going to say they had graduated, and in a sense they had, but we're always graduating, aren't we? I mean, has anyone really arrived? No, but they were really knocking it out of the park, weren't they? Go back to the introduction. You guys can hear all about it. They were growing up in spiritual maturity, and they had proven that in chapters 1 and then chapters 2, and we'll get to chapters 3 and on and on. It's a, it's a marvelous thing. Now, I just want to take a segue here for just a moment, speaking of spiritual maturity for all of us right here. I don't necessarily do a lot of application. Let the Word of God do the, uh, the, the application for us. But I want you to hear a strong rebuke from the Word of God, from the writer of Hebrews. What does the writer of Hebrews talk about growing in maturity? What does he say? It's Hebrews 5, verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. The writer says, Speaking to his audience, he says, you have become dull. Hmm? You have become dull, dull of hearing. Verse 12, by this time, you ought to have been teachers. But you still need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is but a child. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, constant practice, to distinguish good from evil. Marvelous. They were maturing in Christ. That's a strong rebuke from us. We're to grow in maturity. We can't just come in every Sunday and listen to Pastor Ed and say, man, high five, that was an awesome message, and then live a life that doesn't look anything like what he's been preaching. Did you hear that series on you know, I just mentioned it. Forgiveness? Yeah. And then, okay, but you're the same guy who's holding a grudge against all Like, is your life changing? Are you growing in maturity? Are you still drinking milk when some of you ought to have been teachers? That's what the writer's saying. Grow up. Grow up. Okay, that's a rebuke from the writer of Hebrews. But you don't see that rebuke over in First Thessalonians, not even in his second letter. They were growing up. They were maturing, right? They were weaned like a nursing mother and father. Now, I don't want you to miss verse 12. The rest of it. Watch now. Let's go back to uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. I want you to see this. Let's read it again. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, what? Well, we saw this, to walk in a manner worthy of God, worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, be very clear here. I am not saying you're going to walk to earn. I say this all the time because I never want to get misunderstood. You know, Matt said you walk to earn salvation. No, you don't. No, you don't. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's impossible. But you do walk or are charged to walk according to your position, your position. We're to practice our position in Christ. Ephesians 2.6, we were raised, uh, Christ raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our eternal residence is in heaven. Our eternal position is in, in, in Christ Jesus. Your position, my position, if we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, our faith is in Christ Jesus, him alone, to be justified by him. Watch now, we're in Christ. And so we're to practice our position. That's our position, being in Christ. Our lives are to be patterned, patterned, after our position. Again, let's go back to kids. Hey, come on, don't act like that. You ever heard that one? I've been on the receiving end of that when I was a kid, and maybe even sometimes right now. You tell your kid, say, 
Why are you acting like that? Act your age. Grow up. Don't we say that in the physical sense? Of course we do. Same thing. Hey, Christian. Hey, uh, Christ follower. Grow up, man. Well, I know what the Bible says, but, you know, come on. We all sin. Yeah, but, dude, you should be growing in righteousness. You should be going from one glory to the next. You shouldn't look the way you look right now. How embarrassing in the worldly sense. I'm diverting here for just a second. These, uh, so I'm 44. Can you imagine going to these clubs and these, you know, does anyone go to clubs anymore? I don't know. But, you know, going out and these people are just drinking themselves crazy and they're like 40 and 30 and 50. I mean, it's bad enough at 21, right? But like, dude, like that's immaturity. You shouldn't be doing it at 21, but you definitely should not be doing it at age 45. Like grow up. So we're to match our calling. That's what we're to do. Walk in a manner worthy of God. You're not going to earn his worth because we're all unworthy. You can't earn his worth, okay? You're all unworthy. You will never earn your way. But you need to be walking in a way that matches your position. By grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of your own, okay? And you were taken out of sin and God's wrath and thrown into heaven in Christ Jesus. Your position is in Christ Jesus. You didn't do that. I didn't do that. He did it. Okay, now that he's done it, let's go do it. That's the command. We're to practice our position. Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand. To what end? That we should walk in them. God's doing a work, and we're in some marvelous way participating in that marvelous work. Yeah, walk to please God. That was chapter 4, verse 1, which is basically the same thing of walk in a manner worthy of God. That's what's happening here. All right, now I want to look at the response proof. We're looking at proofs. He says, you yourselves know that our coming to you was not in vain. You know it. And I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you all the reasons why. We saw that in chapter 1. Now we're seeing it here in chapter 2. All right, so let's look at it. We're in verse 13. Verse 13. He says, and, and we also, we also thank God constantly for this. Boy, he's always doing that. Doesn't that harken back to verse 2 of chapter 1? And we thank God. On your behalf, always and constantly. Here he says in verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this. What? That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you what? You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What do they do? They recognize the word of God for what it was, which is what? The word of God. It's not we went back to Galatians. It's not man's gospel. It's not man's teaching. It's not Paul's teaching. It's not Paul's gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one gospel. And you what? You received it. You heard it. We brought it to you. We talked about that in chapter one. He says it here. He says he references it, which you heard from us, right? And you did what? You accepted it, not as a word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. You received it for what it was. Hmm. They recognize, they embrace for what it truly is. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active. The word of God is living and active. It's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it do? What does it do? Well, it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it brings men to faith. Right? The Holy Spirit's working. He's working right now. He's always working to bring and draw sinners to repentance. 
And as I said last time, and I'll keep repeating this forever, it's at the preaching of the Word of God. You have to preach the Word. He says it didn't just come in Word only, chapter 1. That's not how my, my gospel came to you, not only in Word, right? Of course it came in Word. It has to. And so we speak. Why? Because they were approved. They were approved. Look at this. Alive and active. That's the Word of God. You received it for what it was. It's alive. It's not dead. It's not some relic. It's alive. It's doing things. Wow, it's, 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 it's bringing men to faith. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, 55.11, don't go there. The prophet Isaiah says of the Lord, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall, it will accomplish that which I purpose and it will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Boom. That's the Lord at work, and he's doing it through the word. That's the chosen mode. I didn't come up with that. That was his idea, and we're doing it, and that's what they did right there. Marvelous. Now, that's not all. Look at this. He says at the very end of verse 13, did you see it? Look at this. You accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, and we celebrate that, but watch. He says, look at this part, which is at work, and you believers. Wait, is that a typo? It's got to be a typo. It says it's at work in you believers. No, I thought it was at work in, in, in the unregenerate. Well, it is, right? By the Spirit of God who is regenerating men. But look, it says it is at work in you believers. Just because you come to faith doesn't mean it stops. That's just the beginning. Sure it is. The Word of God hasn't stopped working. Okay, I'm in faith. Well, that's it. I guess you don't need this anymore. No, you need this evermore. Of course you do. Yes, you're justified. We already, we've already gone over that. But you're in the part of sanctification, right? We're set apart, being transformed into the Son, looking more and more and acting like the Son. That's the point. Again, exhorted, encouraged, charged to walk in a manner worthy of God. Wow, the Word of God is at work in you and me and all believers. Can I take you to Philippians? Eh, just, just listen. Philippians, I love this one. It's 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. People get so worked up over this verse. I could spend hours and days on this verse. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Keep reading, verse 13, for it is God, it's God, not man, listen now, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay? You're to work out what God is working in. Did you get that? Work it out. Work out what God is dispensing in. Okay? You're not doing it on your own. You're doing it under the power, the leading, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's God, and he's doing it in you. And what is he doing? He's at work in you. God's at work in you doing what? Fashioning, forming, transforming what? Your will. Empowering you to work. Man, you know what? <laughs> I remember when I hated Christians. Man, I love Christians. Man, I hated the word of God. It was like boring. And now I just can't, I can't get enough of it. Right? Things change. Why did you change your mind? Are you such a good person? No, you're not. Filthy rags, friend. There's no righteous in you apart from Christ. So why do you love the Word of God so much? Who changed your mind? The Spirit of the living God did that. Of course he did. And then what? And seeing what it is for what it is, he then powers you to then do what? To then work. It's God in you both to will and to work. For what? For his good pleasure. He's fashioning us one glory to another into the beloved Son. Amen? Of course. Work out what he is working in. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. Well, we're up to our last proof. 
verses 14 through 16. Let's look at it. He says, for you, brothers, he says, you became imitators. There it is again. He says, you became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God. And what else? They oppose all mankind. By what? Hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them again at last. There it is again. You became imitators. You guys remember that, right? From 1-6, they became imitators of Paul and Silas and of the Lord. And here, and we mentioned it last time, here they're imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, what way? In what way were they imitators? How were they imitating those churches? And we have, well, he spells it out for us, doesn't he? He says, through perseverance, they were enduring severe, intense persecution. Matt, you keep mentioning it. Man, have you read through this letter and the next one? It's all about suffering. It's all about persecution. And when is it going to end? That's in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. We'll get there. Can't wait. But how bad was it? Well, he says they killed Jesus. Let's start there. That's always a good place to start. They killed Jesus. What else? They killed the prophets. They drove out all the apostles. What else? They displeased God by opposing mankind. And in what way, what way do they do that? They hinder the proclamation of the gospel. You must hate men really, really bad to oppose the gospel because it is the gospel that saves men. It's the gospel that saves men, which is saw it as a two-edged sword. Didn't we see that? It's at work. It's active. It's alive. It's doing things. It's bringing men to repentance, filling up sins and the certainty of wrath. Persecution. You know who warned about persecution? Jesus. What did Jesus say? He said a lot about it. I'm only going to give you two verses. John 15, 18. He says, Jesus, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, <clears throat> excuse me, the world hates you. The world hates you. Jesus warned of it. Yeah, but that was Jesus. Well, what about Paul and Silas? Didn't they warn about it? Chapter 3, and we'll get there next time. They warned. They said persecution and suffering, again, for the sake of the gospel. It's always for the sake of the gospel. Oh, I'm suffering terribly at my job, man. I'm living it out. But Paul says persevere. Yeah, persevere. But you're not suffering persecution for the gospel unless you're preaching the gospel at work. And they specifically say, Matt, you can never say the name of Jesus, okay? Or we'll dock you pay or whatever. Okay, so now I begin to suffer. But in a general sense, that's not suffering, okay? But here it's suffering, he says, destined. I don't want to give it all away here because we'll get there next time. He says you are destined for suffering, destined for persecution for the sake of the gospel. For Jesus. Hmm. But was it really so bad, that persecution, Matt? I mean, doesn't every generation say it's really bad? Yeah, yeah. But it must be bad if they believe convincingly that it's the day of the Lord. Go to 2 Thessalonians, which is a follow-up to this one. They were convinced it was the day of the Lord. Not that it might be. Not that it could be. No, it, it absolutely, we're in the day of the Lord. It is. And he has to write this letter as fast as he can to 
dispatch it, not because they're in sin, but because they, you guys are misunderstood, okay? I don't want you moved. I don't want you stirred. I don't want you shaken, okay? As if by spirit or, or as if I had written to you, as if it had come to, from me. I'm getting ahead of myself. But the persecution, the trials associated with the gospel were so intense that they believed it to be the end of days. Not just the end of days, the day of the Lord, the dreaded day of the Lord. And yet, and yet, listen now, even though they were convinced it was the dreaded day of the Lord, they're wrong, by the way, okay? But even though they were convinced of it, what did they do? What was their reaction? He says, you became imitators of me and Silas and the Lord Jesus amid affliction. You became imitators of the churches and God in Christ Jesus and, and throughout Judea with joy of the Holy Spirit. Oh yeah, we talked about that last time. Chapter one, verse six. Imitators with affliction Persecution, suffering with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. I want to take us down. We've had a lot of time. I've dedicated because I went over last time, so we're going to get into our questions here in a moment, but I'm just about done here. Let's wrap things up here for tonight's study, shall we? Go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. We started here. He says, for you yourselves know, Edo, you know. We talked about that. You know, it's settled, it's personal, it's a full knowledge. You know yourselves, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. You know it. And he put forth all these proofs. In chapter 1 it was, we know, wasn't it? We know, Paul and Silas, we know this to be true. And in this chapter it's all about you guys also knowing that this is true. Look at their behavior. What was it? They were tested, weren't they? They were examined. And they were approved by the Lord himself, entrusted with the sacred responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. Their behavior was what? Found to be holy, right? Righteous and blameless. You could not accuse them. They weren't perfect men, okay? We know that. But there was nothing obvious or there there was no, uh, he says, error, right? There was no deceit. They weren't beguiling They weren't shrouding their evil intent. Why? Because it's God who tests the motives. It's God who tests the heart, and he said that. And he even invoked God as a witness. Jesus said, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And he says, I testify that these things are true. I declare them to be true, and I'm invoking you Thessalonians as a witness and God himself twice in this letter. God is witness. Bold. Bold. We talk about boldness. If it ain't true, right? What about their response, the Thessalonian response? We saw that in chapter 1. We see it here as well. What did they do? They accepted the word of God for what it truly is. What it truly is, not the gospel of some man. Alive and active. They received it. They believed it. And what else? They matured, didn't they? They grew spiritually strong. Becoming imitators. Such imitation that we saw this last time too, that their example went through all of Macedonia, didn't it? All of Macedonia, all of Achaia, and then he said what else? And everywhere, and everywhere. Proofs that you yourselves know that are coming to you was not in vain. You know it to be true. And I've put forth all the proofs here in chapter 2, which is largely about Silas and Paul's character 
And then in chapter 1, about how the Thessalonian church had received that gospel message. 